I'm jumping on a plane this afternoon to fly up to Boston to continue my work on this documentary film my buddy Stu Maddox is making about the heroes who work in adult protective services, protecting the powerless, giving voice to the powerless, lobbying for them. And along the way, I met a very inspirational woman named Mara Sullivan, who you're here from in a second. And um, she she is an advocate. They all reject the term hero. They don't want to call it the hero, the, the actual clients. In this case, her sons were heroes uh, in the sense that they're the ones who live with the disabilities. They are the disabled people who require us to go to bat for them, for the weak and for the powerless. And whenever I see somebody do, do that, I mean, it just, I want to stick up for those guys. I'm, I'm not a natural push people down. I think most people aren't. I think most people, their hearts go out to them and they identify with them as family. And that's why I think you will enjoy hearing and be inspired by Maura Sullivan. I was very just focused on them, head down, trying to figure this out, researching at night, not sleeping at all. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, my podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. This is fun. It's interesting uh, because we start at the big picture and then get down into the nitty-gritty. There are two things you need to know about Maura Sullivan. One is that she has two boys and a girl, and they're grown now, but the two boys both had very profound autism, and we go into how she found that out. And rather than give up, she fought for them, and now she fights for many, many others for well over a decade as a lobbyist on behalf of the ARC, which lobbies for protections for intellectually disabled citizens, in this case in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But what she does and the the fine, fine work she does going up to wherever you call it, the State House, to Beacon Hill, to actually make a difference, not for one, but for everyone. Mara Sullivan. Where were you born? I was born right around here in Arlington, Massachusetts. What, if anything, did your mother tell you about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery with you? Um, all I remember was that she was in a competition with the neighbor who was also pregnant and due on the same day. And she was determined to get me out before, um, you know, her neighbor friend got her baby out. But and she did. Um, but we did both get born on the same day. And we were both born with red hair, blue eyes, freckles and a birthmark in the same spot on our knee. So <laughs> we always thought somehow something weird was going on there. But um, but yeah, that we ended up being best friends our whole lives. I was Sullivan. He was Doherty. So, you know, it was, it was the, the Irish clan, I guess. Wow. 
<laughs> very Irish neighborhood, I guess. Yeah, I guess it was, yeah. And so how far back does the Irish go on father's and mother's side? How how, how many generations um, across the pond? Yeah, I wish I was, but some people are, they really know their Irish heritage and I don't. I just know that my dad was actually half Irish, half French, and my mom was half Irish and half English. So we, even though I look very Irish, I'm actually not all the way Irish. Where were you in the birth order for your mother? Last, yes. Yeah, Out of baby. how many? Uh, well, two other sisters. So I think they were going for the boy. But um, instead they got me and my dad decided, you know, he was going to make an athlete out of me. He tried. So I'm short. And he thought, you know, he was going to get me to play basketball with that. That didn't happen. Um, but he found out I was strong and we did a lot of um, push-ups after dinner and, and sit-ups. And then eventually I became a gymnast. So I was a pretty high level gymnast growing up. What was your best event? I was a bar worker. So one of the top in the state here <clears throat> on bars. But um, yeah, I had the I had the arms back then. I actually got very injured in my senior year, which many, I guess, women gymnasts do when they're, you know, pushing themselves. So I ended up dropping out my senior year. Um, but luckily, I, I became a coach while I was in college. I coached um, Amherst High School gymnastics and they were phenomenal, became became Western Mass champs, and I coached them for four years, and uh, it was it was fantastic. So it was a nice transition out for me. Did you only coach girls? Well, yeah, uh, I did, but um, at the time, Amherst High School only had a girls' team, and I had um, a young man who wanted to join my team. Um, so we broke all the rules, and uh, we got him on there. So <laughs> way back when. But, but he didn't yeah. compete against girls. Yeah, he did. We got him on there. Yeah, he competed. He yeah, it was competed in high school against girls from other schools. He did. Yep. We got him on the team. He was um he was not very good. So he was uh often his score was thrown out because they take the top four scores and they throw out the low ones. <laughs> so somehow we did it. It's funny, this was, you know, thirty years ago or whatever, and um and uh, he is a Facebook friend of mine now, this the young man. And he opened a gym in Springfield, Massachusetts. And this is what he does. He coaches gymnastics. So <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> Boy, nowadays that would not happen. No, I know. Yeah, no. It was 30 years ago. And I think they thought they were being actually inclusive, which they were. Um, but yeah, it would have got tricky if he was like the top star, you know. So... What did you learn about coaching that was translatable? I think one of the things I do here and, you know, maybe outside of work is you know, I really look for, for people's strengths, that everyone can collaborate, understand each other's needs and support each other. I mean, that's what gymnastics was about for me is like we were a bunch of, you know, kids supporting each other and, um, and coaches trying to, trying to build that. When you have someone for- who has an obvious weakness that is addressable, it's something that 
He may not be great, but he can be a lot better than what he is. How? How do you speak to someone? How do you orient yourself toward them? I had one woman who was, she was a young woman. She was just, I remember, just amazing uh, at pulling the team together for like spirit events. But um, what her real skill ended up being is is choreography. She was great at helping people put their routines together. So even though she was too nervous of a performer and a competitor, she was like my assistant coach instead of, you know, doing too much competing. And I don't know. I, I can't, it was a long time ago, but I, I, my memories are all like so super warm. And um, a lot of people, you know, struggle with, with sports being like kind of bad memories and too intense or whatever, but mine are all so good. That's wonderful. Yeah, it was great. At age 18, what did you do? Where did you go? Yeah, so I went uh, to college at UMass Amherst and um, kind of started my uh, my pursuits for psychology. I thought I wanted to do sports psychology. and um, But as I got into my classes, I, I really fell in love with um, abnormal psych and clinical psychology. And um, so, so anyway, when I, I graduated, I, I actually worked um, at Belchertown State Mental Hospital out in the Berkshire area there. And um, it was an institution and it was still open back then. It actually closed the year after I left. Um, and it was pretty uh unbelievably eye-opening for me just to go in there as a young person and I was assigned um a couple of clients and one of them um you know looking back now he was just very very similar to my son um he certainly had autism I don't think it was diagnosed um but he also had really low vision and uh, really, really low hearing ability. And when I would come to be with him, he just wanted to walk because he couldn't see normally without someone guiding him. So when we get there, we would just walk and walk and walk the campus. Um, Did he speak? Some, was he verbal? Not verbal at all. No, just made some sounds and uh, still really like, strong young guy but just sort of trapped because you know he couldn't really move around too much and then he was he was not verbal and oh man i mean he didn't have teeth it was it was a pretty intense way to start um sort of my my career in this field and even um one day i remember you know i was just out of college and I must have been exhausted when I got to work and he just wanted to keep walking and walking and I said you know let's sit down let's take a break and he didn't want to sit down um so he he tried to like pull me back up but his his fingernails were really long um and he 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 scratched really deeply drew some blood in my hand which I didn't think much of but um but then I realized like his hand is pretty much always in his mouth, you know, so his hand is covered in saliva at all times. And then he did get like the saliva to blood contact and he was a, a hepatitis B guy. Um, 
So I had no protections against that going in. And um, it was actually my first uh, venture into advocacy because um, because I did get um, a policy change that the that the you know, new employees had to have a hepatitis B vaccination before they started. I was okay. I had to do like gamma globulin shots in my butt all summer that year, but <laughs> I, I didn't get it. And, uh, and, and he was just an amazing guy. I left there, the institution closed. I would think about him often, you know, especially after I had my own kids. And um, I was at a conference in Western Mass and there was a, a community leader there. And I told him about this person. I won't say his name for HIPAA reasons. The The man said, oh, my God, he's doing amazing. He's been integrated into the community. He's living his best life. I was I literally couldn't um, believe it. I was so because in my head, I just imagined all the worst case scenarios. So I was just oh, full of joy around that one. And. I thought about him a lot just because um, when my son was diagnosed with autism, um, they were all, my, both my sons were diagnosed uh, with mitochondrial disease. Just strange how life kind of takes you in these these journeys. I don't know what mitochondrial disease means. Yeah, it's kind of a heavy one. So um, yeah, jumping forward, I I had my son and. Um, he was developing typically. My daughter had come before him um, and he seemed to be doing well. He just got sick a lot more often than she did. So we were at the doctors a lot. He had infections. He had viruses. He he just seemed a little bit less uh, able to fight things off. So I ended up leaving my job at the time and staying home with him Um and I got to see like his very mysterious development, which was uh, one that took a, a downturn right around a year. He started to regress and um, his language was really affected. He had learned a lot of words. He was kind of an early speaker. And um, by 18 months, uh, he had he had really dropped off in his language. Um, he... He went from a really engaged and just silly, happy baby boy to someone who looked like he didn't trust the world around him. And um, he was kind of inconsolable. I, I would do everything to stop him from crying, from just being upset. Um, but I just couldn't seem to, to comfort him enough. And so we were at the pediatrician all the time trying to figure out what was going on with him he was crying every day he um was covering his ears a lot and <clears throat> kind of curled up in a ball and I was so so worried and by the end of that week I remember thinking I haven't heard him even say any words all week he's just been crying and it's like no words and so I tried to get him to say mama and um, he couldn't even put his lips together. So all of his language was just gone. Um, and I remember just like going to my computer and putting in, you know, loss of language and autism came up. And I thought, you know, well, no, it's not 
that because, you know, he was so connected to me and um, he was so loving and all he wanted to do was, was snuggle and hold me and, and how could he have autism? Um, but of course that, you know, got me to kind of skip over the pediatrician who was not so helpful. And we got into children's hospital and to their neurology there. And oddly enough, they didn't diagnose him with autism at the time. I think now he would have got an autism diagnosis right away. But um, then they thought that his loss of language had to be something medical going on. Um, so we went on this very long track uh, where we ended up at Cleveland Clinic. And that's where they diagnosed the mitochondrial disease with a deep muscle biopsy. And um, that's a disorder of energy production. Um, and it's genetic. And basically, it it's about our, our way to make energy. The central nervous system wasn't getting the energy it needed. And it started to explain some of his other crying and upset. Um, so uncovering that was huge. He also was diagnosed with autism probably about six months after our initial uh, trip to Children's Hospital. And yeah, I think it was a relief by then um, because he had really crashed even further into autism where he was just not sleeping. He was, um, he was biting everyone. He was just in a real tough state. He lasted at his preschool for one day and they kicked him out. Um, so it was a crazy challenging time. And, uh, and then Tyler was born just, just around then. <laughs> so how did you take care of yourself as a mom? I didn't do anything for myself during those times. Um, I was very just focused on them head down trying to figure this out, researching at night, not sleeping at all. Um, you know, it was, it was chaos for me. And the adrenaline was just flowing at all times to just try to figure this out, try to keep him safe. I mean, his behaviors were crazy. So there was constant 24-7 vigilance. He put everything in his mouth. He, you know, really had trouble swallowing food. So it was just a, a vigilant time. Um, and I remember feeling pretty bad when I found out I was pregnant with Tyler. Like, wow, how could I do this? You know, it was irresponsible or something. Maybe I thought, um, given the amount of care Neil really needed. and. Um, I was so uh, surprised and happily surprised at the support that I got from my family, right? They were, you know, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Tyler's going to come and be the best little brother and Jillian's going to have, you know, someone to play with too. And um, so, you know, it was amazing. Tyler came and he really was everything we needed in my family. It was like total comic relief from like <laughs> from early, early on. Um, he he uh, was a huge baby. He was he was born 
normal. And then he just exploded in growth and he was like 33 pounds at nine months. So oh my giant. Word. <laughs> I know he was so big. So he, I mean, they were testing him for everything and, you know, overgrowth syndromes and all sorts, but, but he was doing great. He was, you know, babbling really early on. And um, we had this, you know, all eyes were on him. Neil's medical team was forming and they were watching Tyler. They were watching him when he was in my belly. Um, you know, he was in a, a sibling study. So we would take him every three months and they, they would say no signs of autism, no signs of autism. But, um, you know, my fears were were there and my fears were were very, very strong. Um, he was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease pretty early on. They found that pretty quickly in his blood work and we went back to Cleveland. Um, so he was looking like, you know, he might have a similar profile to Neil. Um, and then his language just didn't really come along, like even like Neil's did. So he only had two words. He had mama and up. And, um, and then right around 16, 17 months, um, my really unbelievably engaged, silly, like all he wanted to do was play peekaboo and, and fall down and, you know, make you laugh. And, um, I just, I couldn't even get his eye contact back at 16 months. It was just gone. He was not there. Um, so that was kind of my worst fear, right? Like that it would happen again. And, and then just something, you know, really came over me. Like, I just can't have two nonverbal kids. Like we, we had to figure out a way to get them to communicate. And that definitely drove me, you know? Uh, so poor Tyler, he, he got into ex very intensive early intervention he was up to like 40 hours a week like a full-time job um but he he really seemed to handle it he was a hard-working kid and um wanted to please people and he learned a lot of sign language and he could he ended up learning about a hundred different signs which was so great um but no words were coming so we had a lot of help in the house. We had um, pretty much a revolving door of therapists coming in to do speech and occupational therapy and physical therapy and ABA, applied behavior analysis. Um, How were you able to afford all that? Yeah, it's a great question. We, we did not do a good job affording all of that. Um, refinanced our home. Big borrowed. Um, I couldn't work. I went down to, to nothing for a while. I was part-time and um, even my ex-husband had to uh, cut hours. Um, there was really never a time where we couldn't be one-to-one -one with the kids. So uh, always, always really challenging, especially I also had my daughter who was kind of like, hey, where are my parents? And <laughs> what happened oh they're at the emergency room again oh they're at some hospital or she spent a lot of her life just you know in waiting rooms um coloring she's an amazing artist maybe that's that's what brought it about <laughs> uh but yeah those were the really chaotic days and actually a 
reason why I got deeply involved in advocacy is because we were spending about $5,000 a month in private pay therapy for my boys. And um, I remember thinking, how can I not do this? This is what they need. They need to learn how to talk. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do <laughs> to uh, to get them that that service. And, um, and my boys were uh, the perfect uh, poster children. So we had a lot of media in the house kind of filming them and showing just how much this type of therapy was needed for them to be present, to learn. And so, yeah, we were lucky that bill passed. And now we have one of the most um, really comprehensive uh, bills in the country to cover this kind of therapies for, for kids with autism. What advocacy organization did you work with to do that? So interestingly, this um, was very grassroots and started really with parents um, and many other organizations uh, at the state house jumped in, including the ARC. And we had a senator who had a son with autism who really got behind this bill and, and pushed it so hard. That was Senator Barbara Italian. And, and the parents, we just, we really came together. It was kind of a, a miracle because you don't usually see a bill pass in one session. It was pretty easy to show, like, you know, I was going bankrupt, you know, trying to get these services. And if you had a child who had cancer, um, you would get them their cancer treatments. And so my child who had autism was not having access to his autism treatments, who I think benefit the most is those, um, you know, families now who can kind of enter into this and not even have to think about coverage, uh, which is so, so important. On all manner of issues, what I find most interesting, having covered three different legislatures in the South, is what makes the difference in actually getting effective legislation passed, not feel good, not, oh, so sorry, thoughts and prayers, but <laughs> actually getting help. You've got to have some kind of cookbook, but also an understanding of what all the links in the chain are. So how did you learn that? When people can, um, you know, hear your story, feel your lived experience, and it makes sense to them. Um, they're going to jump in and be much more willing to help than if they're, you know, reading the facts and figures about why a bill needs to pass. So, I mean, our strategy is always to, to bring the stories, to bring the people, but then to really, you know, get our champions in the legislature to do the work, making our priorities their priorities. And that takes a lot because they've got their own priorities. Um, How do you identify your champions? Yeah. So, um, again, you know, when we have an important piece of legislation and um, we ask, you know, a rep or a senator both to, to carry that, we want to see them not just, you know, sponsor that legislation. We want to see them really collaborate with their colleagues 
to bring those colleagues on board um, to be just as strong of, of a champion as they are, um, to really learn the issues. You know, sometimes it, you'll get people file a bill, they don't really know what it's all about. So we try to make sure that they're really, really educated. They can do interviews on it. They can, you know, speak about it in front of committees. They need to to speak to leadership over and over that this is a vulnerable community that they're representing. And I do think sometimes we get a leg up on that because, you know, they do see it as more important than the potholes getting fixed. Or, I also um, have a lot of questions around this storytelling because yeah. that's thrown out a lot of times, storytelling. Um, yeah. The God and the devil are in the details. And when you say $5,000 a month, I immediately go, well, if I have $100,000 in equity in my house, that's only 20 months. That's less than two years for these boys. They're, they're not yep. going to be done in 20 months. But I'm going to be done. I'm going to be tapped out. And so yep. I don't know what I'm going to do. Are they all of a sudden going to get dropped after 20 months? So what details do you include in your pitch? And what do you exclude so that you don't wear out your welcome? Okay, you've got three minutes. Okay, you've got five minutes. Oh, yeah. uh, knock yourself out, but I've got a committee hearing. Go. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And when we're testifying in front of committees, we only have three minutes. So we've got to get everything down to a science there. Um, well, I, you know, personally, I, I do think the, the personal details of a story really help people understand and explain the issue. So, so, I, you know, I throw out that $5,000. You're right. It, was about two and a half years and we were out of money. <laughs> um, and, you know, then we started to borrow money. Then we sold our house. Um, so <clears throat> the, the, sometimes it's hard to tell these personal pieces in front of total strangers sitting in front of you. Um, I remember when we were uh, advocating for that ABA bill, um, I actually had my son sitting on my lap. And, um, and I said, you know, we all know that early and intensive intervention is the best way to get long-term results. And you're telling me I can't do that for my sons. And, you know, I'm out of money. I can't make this come out of nowhere. Um, and, it, and it's critical now. I like to tell you know, what it actually takes to be a direct support professional to my son. And um, it's not easy. It's not easy work and it deserves to be compensated. And, you know, if he has a behavior, they have to figure out how to keep him safe, how to keep themselves safe. Sometimes it ends in three or four people having to restrain him and it's sweat and it's tears and it's really difficult. Um, he has seizures. They have to know that if they don't give him his meds at the exact right time, he's going to have a really scary, awful seizure in front of them. Um, and, and it could be life-threatening. Um, so they, they have to be really med savvy. They have to understand how to prevent 
these behaviors, how to notice triggers for him, and then how to respond. Um, and then I tell them that one of the critical parts here is that we have these workforce just turning over so quickly. And it takes a long time for a bond to happen, for my son to actually trust his staff person. Um and he uses a communication device, so it takes time for that staff person to learn it and communicate with him. And then they leave. And they leave for a job that pays $1.50 more an hour. Um, and the whole thing has to start again. And the training and the um, building of the relationship. Uh, and it's not good for Neil. It's not good for my son. And so why can't we pay these people for this incredibly important work um and and continue to find ways to keep this job important in our society you know well i'm so, going to talk to you about politics and philosophy right now <laughs> you know okay. so a 40,000 foot level i can imagine since one of the states i covered in the south was mississippi it was the first state legislature i covered i can imagine your counterpart there calling on lawmakers who go, look, we are not Massachusetts. We are Mississippi. We don't have the money to care for lots of things. And that is coupled with a philosophy that says, I'm sorry, Mara, but this is not a state responsibility. Maybe you should go to a bigger church, or maybe you should, you know, get your sister to help. But we we can't do this. We can't afford to do this. So when you're coaching your counterparts in other states who bump up against the lack of resources, not just the lack of will, but the, the well, this is really something the churches should do or something mm -hmm. individuals should get together and do. We don't see it as a state responsibility. How do you coach them into persuasion, into lobbying? Yeah, well, I think the economic argument is always the most powerful there. You know, these, these families, they can't work. They can't contribute if they have children who and adults who have such intensive needs. So these families end up in pretty significant, you know, poverty. They're not giving back to the economy. Um, the other thing is we know, uh, especially with the growing prevalence of autism, um, a lot of times when when services are not available, um, things can get pretty bad. And we often see individuals ending up in our hospitals, um, which costs state and federal government a whole lot more than, uh, you know, increasing pay for a direct support professional, just one emergency room, you know, stay. What we're seeing now because of the lack of workforce is really, um, you know, real regression in in the skills and, and the behaviors of, of you know, these adults who have had wonderful schooling here in Massachusetts. We've put time, effort, and and money into giving them the best quality education and supports they could. And now 
we're in this workforce crisis and they're at home getting nothing and they're really falling apart and they are ending up boarding in our emergency rooms, mental health issues coming on. Um, so we're going to pay for it somewhere. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're looking at one in 36 with autism now. We're also seeing that, you know, our medical um, community has been able to just, you know, save so many babies that they would not have been able to save 20 years ago. Our advances are allowing uh, pregnancies and births that, you know, wouldn't have happened. But many of these babies live on with developmental disabilities. So um, we also have a, a aging population that's going to need this kind of care. So, so whether you know a, a state wants to believe it's their their uh, responsibility, um, we see a safety net as is really the only way uh, you know to to really protect a state from from economic downfall. And we're changing. We're really changing their minds. We're opening their opening them up, um, inspiring them. They're willing to treat patients. They're um, more confident about their abilities, uh, and they're just amazed. You know, amazed by the strength and the resilience of the families that they meet. It's just been such an amazing program. This one we finally passed this year. Um, so this was five sessions of, of uh, testifying for this bill, bringing in families. And, and again, I think the legislature thought this was a very important program and that they should support it. But it just it never really got like high enough priority. Five um, sessions. That's that's a decade. Yeah, it was a decade. <laughs> it's not five years. That's ten. No, it was 10 years, right? So, yeah, I got here 13 years ago. I started, we decided to try to make it a bill and get state funding. And uh, here we are, 10 years later, we got it. But um, it was a long road. Do you want to quit? You know? <laughs> yes, I did. I actually thought this um, coming up session, if the bill didn't pass, we would not refile. Yeah. Um, it was getting really hard to testify front of those committees and put the time in and you know just logistically thinking i have other bills you know how do i how do i weigh this and so i went to my sponsor um and i said listen i i don't know if i want to file again what do you think like maybe we just don't file and he said don't give up <laughs> he said don't give up we're gonna file it this year he said, I'm going to try to get it into the budget. We're going to we're going to get it through. And so he kind of reignited me. And I believed him mostly because he's the chair of healthcare finance. So um, <laughs> the right that, person. That helps. <laughs> uh, yeah. So unbelievable. We had an incredible hearing. Um, doc doctors, medical students, families, individuals with autism, um, passionate, passionate uh, testimony. And um yeah, now we actually have the funding we need to strengthen the program and grow the program. And um, so, yeah, very grateful. Those are the things that just kind of really keep you going, you know. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this 
little audio recording. What is your legacy? Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, um, hmm. So I think, you know, for me, it's, it's always about continuing to learn from others. And I feel like I have a, a lifetime ahead of me of learning and, um, and being able to turn that around and share is, is really my goal. So hopefully I've been able to do that. I've been able to learn from my kids mostly, learn from other families and, um, and learn from my experiences and, and really be able to share that. So um, even if we got struck by lightning, I wouldn't be able to continue to do that, but at least, at least some of that's been out there. And it's almost like as the gymnast, you were the coach in training, you know, as the practitioner. And as the student, you were a teacher in training. It's almost like you have an obligation when you get to the point where you're no longer the student to turn around and use your experience to encourage or pull somebody else along. That's it, you know, and I, I think the more I share, um, the more I encourage other families to share and we support each other through the process. And sometimes it's hard, but, um, you know, we're never going to be perfect at this either, you know? Um, so there's always room to like go back and, and criticize yourself. But I think, you know, we just keep moving forward and, and a little bit of progress, you know, we celebrate. Absolutely. Mara Sullivan, God bless you. Thank you for all you've done for so, so many people who don't Thank have a so voice themselves. They literally do not have a voice. Yeah. There's lots of those and there's lots of people who, who just don't know how um, to get there, right? So we've got to put them on a little path to get there to be their own advocates too. And, um, and that's, that's really fulfilling, um, in my role as well. But thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Appreciate it. The film that includes Maura Sullivan that we're working on, The Clouder Group, and lots of other people, the National Association for Adult Protective Services, where I'll be this week. Um, that comes out next year, and it's under the tentative title Heroes of Adult Protection. And we're looking for funders, and we're also looking for, um, we've got some funders, and we've, the bandwagon is going, the momentum is going, and we're also looking for um, stories. So get in touch, stay in touch and uh, be on the lookout for that. Thanks so much for listening. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. 
Look for man listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported little old me, this podcast, this effort at listening and changing the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.